Well, if you're just joining us, this is part three of a series called Let's Be Real. And yes, it did take me a moment to remember the name just a minute ago. Sorry about that. Um, If if I do have to pause here, I do have um, stage two of the man flu now. And so I had it like a a couple months ago, and now I got it again. So I didn't know you could get man flu twice in one season, but apparently you can. So if I have to pause, please excuse me for that. But this is part three of a series called Let's Be Real, and in this series we're looking at some lies that uh, can keep couples apart in marriage. Now these aren't the lies where, honey, I bought this pair of shoes and they were only $20. Not that kind of a lie. We're talking about these misunderstandings about what to expect in marriage, and perhaps even uh, different versions of marriage or a false impression of what marriage should be. Uh, Some of these lies are so deeply embedded that we haven't even recognized them, and it takes some work to put words behind them. So in this series, we're looking at four common lies that every couple believes to some extent and is affected by to some extent. If you missed weeks one and two, I really encourage you to go online. Make sure you check those out. But for weeks three and four, what we're going to do is we're going to get into the heart of some things that will um, get into what's called conflict. Um, So today, what we're going to look at will really help you understand conflict a little bit better. It'll help you understand why you approach conflict the way you do or why you avoid conflict the way you do. And we're going to get into a lie and expose a lie that really gets to the heart of a lot of that. But before I get to the lie, I need to share with you this relationship dynamic that's really present in any relationship, but in marriage, it is magnified so so much and so many times. Um, The dynamic that's present in any relationship is something that I'll illustrate here um, in just a minute. But first, quick question. How many of you lived in a dorm ever? Let's keep them really high. You've got to be proud. And make the camera people angry because they're going to be trying to get around your hands. How many of you lived in a dorm for at least four years? Ooh, look at those hands go down. How many of you lived in a dorm more than four years? More than eight years? More than nine years? I'm the only one with my hand up, I think. Ten years. <laughs> What does that mean? So people are like, oh, wow. Oh, no. Like some of you, that explains a lot. <laughs> lived in a dorm for 10 years. All through high school, I lived in a, a dorm high school. Uh, after the first two weeks, it was a lot of fun. First two weeks were kind of hard. But um, all throughout college, lived in a dorm. I actually would have lived in a dorm for 11 years, but Amy married me a little, uh, and saved me from that 11th year of living in a dorm. And so we, we had our own house. Uh, my, that would have been my 11th year. But what, where I'm going with this is simply this. If you've lived with someone in a dorm, or even if you've even roomed with someone, like an apartment, or you rented space together, the longer you were together the more I'm certain that this is true. There are stories out there. I lived in a dorm for 10 years, and believe me, there are stories out there of this guy. There are stories floating out there. You live with people long enough, and they start to see all your silly things that you do, and they see the stupid things that you do. They see your weaknesses, they see your strengths, 
And I, I love it. Sometimes, you know, you'll, you'll meet someone and you'll say, oh, I know your dad. I've got some stories about him. Ho, ho, ho. And, you know, and you're like, what, what was this hidden life that you had? Uh, for me, the hidden life was dorm life, right? Like the people I, I lived with, there, there are stories out there. For example, when, when I was in high school, one of my good friends and I, it was high school, so just remember this. He had this printer, and he had this inkjet printer. And you know how inkjet printers, like the cartridges run out, and it says replace, and then it can't print anymore. Well, he had to replace his color inkjet cartridge, and he'd thrown it away. And it was a weekend, and we're bored. And he's like, have you ever seen the inside of a cartridge? I'm like, you mean the inkjet cartridge? I'm like, no, I haven't. And he's like, neither have I. So we, we pried open an inkjet cartridge. And I'll tell you what, even though it's too dry to print, there is still wet ink inside of it. It was beautiful. The colors of the rainbow inside of this inkjet cartridge. And we're like, this was a hidden artist's tool right there inside the, the thing. And so we, with all these colors inside, and we're like, we need to try this out. And so we went into the shower room with white walls. And we're like, we're just going to put a little bit up on the wall, then it's the shower room, so we'll turn on the water and rinse it off, right? It's just a little, little canvas for a while. So we put stuff on the wall. We were in Germans, and so we wrote D. Autobahn, <laughs> which if you know German isn't even correct German, but we put D. Autobahn, we put Junior's Rule, you know, we, we wrote all this stuff in a beautiful rainbow uh, all over the wall, and we turn on the water to rinse it off, and it did not come off. I have pictures. There's pictures at home. I was going to scan them, but I didn't have time. There's actually pictures of these white walls with all this stuff on them, and I'll tell you what, when, when the dorm tutor came around, which, by the way, never a good idea to have 40 guys watched by one adult. It does not work well. But when the dorm tutor came around, he's like, guys, do you know what happened? And, and we were both seniors at the time, and we're like, Looks like the juniors did this one. <laughs> Never found out it was us. Never. Until this day, now it's online, so there it, there it goes. There it goes. <laughs> Sorry, Mr. Booboltz. Uh, he had no idea what, what we did. Um, he's got stories he could tell that would embarrass me. I've got stories I could tell that would embarrass him. The longer you live with people, the more stories there are. And that's true of any relationship, right? That's what friendship is about. There's this, there's this closeness. There's this sharing of things. But in marriage, you take this truth, and it's magnified tenfold. You, you see, the person you're married to, they just don't—they they know more than just the silly things you've done. They know the stupid things you've done. They know the hurtful things you've done. And they know more than just what you did, but they have personal inside information about what motivated you to do it. A spouse has a unique opportunity to see into the life of the person they live with, to know their weaknesses and their strengths. They don't just see them at their best and worst. They see them at the best of their best, and they see them at the worst of their worst. There's this vulnerability there to the point where it can lead us to a place where we want a lie to be true. The lie that we're going to get into today is one that we might even find ourselves wanting to be true at times. Because, number one on your sheet, 
your spouse is familiar with the flaws that most people don't even know exist. And what do you do with that? Now, at the end, we're going to see this is actually a beautiful thing that God can use in some amazing ways. But at the same time, this can drive fear into someone's heart. Because here's what we rec- uh, eventually realize. You go into marriage, you think everything's great, and before marriage, you even thought that the way she laughed was adorable. She went like, <laughs> and, and you were like, oh, that's just her. And, and, and the more she does it, it's like, come on. And you used to think that, you know, the way he did dishes was just because he was a dude and he would shape up once you got married, but that dude don't do dishes. And now it's just wearing on you and wearing on you and wearing on you. And, and all of a sudden, as you get married, more and more of these flaws begin to raise up out of nowhere. And you're thinking to yourself, who did I marry? And if you think you married the wrong person, you need to listen to last week's message. Ben covered that last week. But for today, these flaws just keep coming up. These flaws keep coming up. And your, your spouse is more familiar with them than anyone else, to the point where some people might not even be aware of some of your flaws. And here's where the conflict happens. She comes in to the kitchen and says, you're having another drink? And guys, do you feel the temperature going up a little bit? Like, who is she to point out how many drinks I'm having? Or she comes home with a bag from the mall. And he says, I don't care what's in it. How much is in it? How much is no longer in our account because of what's in the bag? And, and she thinks, how dare he point out what I'm doing? And there can be moments in marriage where one person says something that might just be a little bit of a hint that what they're doing might be a flaw. And then the other person responds with, well, you have a flaw too. But you have a bigger flaw. But your flaw is bigger. Well, who are you to show me how to load the dishwasher? I don't know why we argue about loading dishwashers in marriage, but we do. Or argue about how to spend money. You're spending too much money. You're saving too much money. And you're you're just too afraid to do this. Or you're too afraid to do that. And you start going back and forth and back and forth. Well, who are you to point out my flaw? And if you point out my flaw, then I'll just point out your flaw until we're the perfect couple. We'll get all of our flaws figured out and we'll be flawless. But that never happens. You see... There's this dynamic in marriage where you have intimate familiarity with each other's flaws to the point where you might want today's lie to be true. The lie number three for this series. You need to accept me as I am and never, never, ever, ever ask me to change. I am who I am. You should just love me the way I am and you should just accept me the way I am because this is how I am. Isn't that what marriage is about? You just need to accept each other. Unconditional love, unconditional acceptance. Isn't that what Jesus said? Now, just like with every other lie, you might not say, well, I've, (laughs) I I think very few, if any of you have actually said this, you just need to accept me the way I am and not ask me to change. But if you've ever found yourself getting defensive because your spouse pointed out your flaw, 
then you've been believing this message to some degree. You've been believing this lie to some degree. And where this lie takes you is not a good place. Not only is this stupid, but this is unbiblical at its very foundation. Nowhere does Jesus tell you to unequivocally, unconditionally accept somebody's behavior no matter what. Rather, you see quite the opposite. He says you need to speak the truth in love when it comes to one another's flaws. So where do we take this? I I hope by the end of today's message, you're going to find something. That when it comes to, to relationships, especially the marriage relationship, you would find the courage to do something else. And you would find the truth to replace this with. And I'll tell you what, it's not an easy truth. But when it comes to marriage, and even your own personal, spiritual, emotional well-being, the path that God is going to show you is one that is so much more healthy. Now to find the, count, to, to find the uh, countermeasures or the, the, the opposite of this lie, to find the truth, we're going to look at something that Jesus taught a couple thousand years ago. And here's the amazing thing that we're, we're about to see as we open up the Bible. This section is not about marriage at all. Uh, It's not a marriage section. Jesus had plenty of marriage sections, but this is not one of them. This is more just a relational section. Um, It almost happens by accident that uh, uh, Jesus wraps this up in a way, and as we look at this through the lens of marriage relationships, we're going to see something that speaks to that part of you that just wants to put up those walls, to say, don't look at my flaws. Just accept me the way I am. And as we see the truth that Jesus brings us to, it's going to give you so much life. This parable that Jesus taught was in Luke chapter 18. And the way he starts sets the stage perfectly. When it comes to parables, so much of understanding what Jesus meant by a parable means you look at who he was speaking to and why he was speaking to them. And as Luke records it, he sets this up perfectly so that we can see the audience that Jesus was trying to reach. It says this, To some who were confident of their own righteousness, in other words, they felt good before God because of what they were doing. They were confident of their own righteousness, and they were looking down on everyone else. Now, here's here's something to pay attention to. These people had fractured relationships with the people around them because of something between them and God. They thought they were so good with God that it was distancing themselves from the people around them. And so in this parable, Jesus is going to speak to the people who don't want their flaws exposed. And by the end, he's going to show the path to what it means to live a life that's based on the truth. So to some who are confident of their own righteousness and who look down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. And and today, from from our perspective, we're thinking, oh man, where is this parable going to take place? Is this going to be at the family dinner table where you you shouldn't look down on your brother or your sister or your family member? Is this going to take place in the work environment where just because someone isn't as gifted as you are, you should still respect them and honor them? When you're looking down on others, where should this take place? 
and here's where your mind should just be, like turn to jelly. It, 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 she says this, two men went to the temple. When it comes to looking down on others and putting up a wall so that your flaws are not going to be seen or exposed, Jesus says the place we need to go to address this is here, to the temple, to the place where God himself dwells. And Jesus sets the stage. He says two men were going up to the temple. One of them was a Pharisee and the other was a tax collector. And we talk about those two all the time, but for the purpose of this parable, what you need to know is this. Pharisees, think of the word devoted. They devoted their life to make sure that no one could accuse them of wrongdoing. Pharisees were devoted on living their lives according to rules and systems so that if someone was looking at them, they would say, this man is flawless. He's perfect. He's done it. <laughs> so that was, that was who the Pharisees were about. Their life was spent studying and learning and, and disciplining themselves for flawlessness. And then on the other extreme, you've got the tax collector. And for the purpose of this parable, all you need to know is that the tax collector also devoted his life, but he devoted his life at the expense of other people. Whereas the Pharisee, people would look at him and see nothing wrong. People would look at the, the tax collector and see everything wrong. He was a man who was got, trying to get money and trying to get wealthy at the expense of all the people whom he should have been loving. And so just off, out, of the, out of the gate, when people would look at Pharisee and tax collector, they would tell the tax collector, if you're going to the temple, you better not be wearing any metal because the lightning might be picking up pretty soon. Tax collector and God, nothing alike. Now Pharisee, there was someone who was like God, at least on the outside. So Jesus is setting this up, maybe even as he says, uh, Pharisee, tax collector. They're saying, wow, what's going to happen when these two meet in the holy temple of the Lord? And here's how it continues. So we start with the Pharisee. The Pharisee stood by himself and he prayed. Now, as, as we look at his prayer, just pay attention to how this one is so different than the prayer that Jesus taught people to pray. The Pharisee stood up and he prayed this, God I thank you. Just pause there. That's a good way to start a prayer. God, I thank you. Thank means I'm indebted to you for something. I acknowledge that I owe you something. I thank you that I am not like other people. Robbers, evildoers, adulterers. Maybe he's kind of looking around the temple to see all the other people. And he's like, yeah, even this tax collector over here, God. Thank you. I'm not like him. See, I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all I get. Um, And background on that, according to Jewish culture, you were expected to fast maybe four or five times a year uh, for religious things. If you were especially devout, you would fast once a week for the Sabbath. And this guy is basically saying, I do double that. I fast twice a week. That's how awesome I am. I am, I am. And then I give a tenth of all I get, not just the things that Moses commanded through the law that I give a tenth of, like the grains and, and all that stuff. If someone you know, gives me a dollar, I give God 10 cents right away. If, if someone gives me a cup of, of, of flour, I give God a, what's a tenth of a cup of flour? A tenth of a cup of flour. 
I'm horrible with t- teaspoons and stuff. But this guy is saying, I don't just meet the law, and I don't just exceed the standards of the law a little bit to be on the safe side. I am the greatest. Pharisee is the greatest. And so he's, just remember this, I thank you. I am not like other people. Now, there's something in this for all of us. There's, we're not as obviously as extreme as that maybe, but there is a part of you that looks down on others because they're not like you. And this parable serves to illustrate the foolishness of this line of thinking. You see, what Jesus is most interested in isn't your obedience to a set of commands. What Jesus told his disciples was, people will know you're my disciples by loving one another. And here the Pharisee was bragging, I thank you, I'm not like one another. This Pharisee's self-righteousness, while he thought it was something that was bragworthy to God, this self-righteousness actually separated him from God. His self-righteousness separated him from the people he was supposed to be loving and helping. And in the end, what Jesus makes clear is that self-righteousness separates you from God himself. And here's the application for marriage. It's it's similar. It's the exact same thing. Self-righteousness will drive away your spouse. If you put up the walls and you say, no, I have no flaws, or how dare you bring attention to my flaws? Don't ask me to change. If you... Take that path of self-righteousness. It will drive away your spouse. And I'm not talking divorce drive away. Maybe it'll just drive away emotionally. Drive away intimacy-wise. Drive away emotional connection. Drive away so that you're not as close as you could be or as God planned you to be. The self-righteousness is one of the things at the heart of this lie when it comes to the the hope that maybe you can just get through by not having to change who you are. Now I want to bring attention right here to what Jesus did. You, You see, Jesus could have put himself in a parable like this. Jesus was more than the righteousness of a Pharisee. Jesus was the legitimate righteousness from God where thought, word, action, deed, everything lined up perfectly. And yet Jesus didn't walk around saying to his father, oh, father, I thank you. I'm not like all the sinners around me. Whew, this place is a mess. I can't wait to get out of here. Jesus didn't say, I thank you. I'm not like them. Jesus rather embraced being found in likeness as a sinful human being. Though he was holy, he took on the appearance of sinful flesh for you, for me. His self-righteousness, which was legitimate righteousness, did not drive people away, but it welcomed people who were nothing like him. That's the attractional value that comes when your self-righteousness doesn't drive people away. And what he did for you was this. He took his righteousness, self-earned, legitimate, and he gave you a new identity from it. 
You see, our, our, our sinfulness, it, it separates us from people. It drives wedges in relationships, drives away uh, spouses, drives away friends. We put up those walls and say, sorry, I don't want to expose my flaws to you. You have no place coming here. That separates us. Only the forgiveness of God can begin to change that. He gives you a confidence, a righteousness that you can be confident in. A lot more confident than, my, than I'm in in our uh, slides right now because we're not, we're not singing our, our final song quite yet. But it does add a nice graphic um, to, to what we're doing. We're going to continue here with uh, the, the next uh, phrase or next part here. Do we have a fill-in? Where are we at? I, I kind of depend on my screen a lot. Here we go. So um, the, the last part here, we, we looked at the Pharisee and, and how he interacted and how he uh, drove away people. Here's the other part. Um, verse 13, Jesus said this, but the tax collector, so much body language here, it's interesting. The tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but he beat his breast and, and I think if they had translated this as beat his chest, you'd picture Tarzan who's being all tough. But this is an act of, of um, submission. It's an act of humility and despair. The man is beating his breast and he said, God, have mercy. I don't deserve to be in this building, the temple. I don't deserve to be in your presence. I'm standing at a distance. All I can do is just plead for your mercy, have mercy, for I am a sinner. This man had a lot more flaws to show than the Pharisee did, and yet he was so much more open and humble to show God what was in. Have mercy on me, a sinner. This humility was not easy. But here was a man who acknowledged the truth of the situation, that he had no chance to be in God's presence unless God would make his presence with him. And then Jesus kind of steps outside of the parable and he gives a couple of remarks. He says, I tell you, here's the summary, I tell you, here's the point of the parable, I tell you that this man, the tax collector, went home justified before God. The tax collector went home with a good relationship with God. God saw the two prayers, he saw the two men, and God was pleased with the sinner who begged for mercy. And that Pharisee went home thinking everything was fine, but he would be in for a bad surprise. And Jesus wraps it up with this overall truth. He says, for all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. And Jesus said, this will be true at the final coming. There will be a big change up in the way people think things will be. But so much more in the moment. Those who pretend they have no flaws that need to be changed. You will be humbled. As you look at the two people here, you see the Pharisee in the story, you see the tax collector in the story. Here's one final thing to kind of bring this back to marriage. You see, the Pharisee was so full of himself that there was no room for God to do anything. He showed up before God and he said, I've got all these things put together. I'm doing this, I'm doing that. I'm pretty good, God. I'm, I'm 
you know, you should be honored to have me praying to you today, so I'll just go ahead and, you know, you're busy, I'll go ahead and go on with my life. And God was like, okay, you do your thing. But then this, this other person, the tax collector, came, and he was humble. He emptied himself. He said, I have nothing. I have nothing but a plead for mercy. And it was when he was emptied that God could fill him up and do something with it. Here's, here's a takeaway. Here's a truth that has something to do with your marriage. Number three, humility makes room for better things to happen. If you're already filled up with pride and self-righteousness, there is no room for anything better to take its place. But humility creates space. It empties out so that there's room for better things to happen. This was one of the main things Jesus wanted his church to do. Standing orders for his church. If your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault, his flaw. Bring him to repentance. Let there be humility so that there can be room to make things better, to bring forgiveness and to bring a new life that honors God and his love for us. Humility makes room for better things to happen. And that happens in any kind of relationship. You can put that into practice, where you approach a relationship and you say, you know what, we're pretty close, and yeah, that one time you you brought up that one thing, it kind of made me defensive. But if you choose the path of humility, that can only leave room to make you better. So here's what I want you to think about, especially husbands and wives, but this applies to anyone in the room who has a relationship with somebody else, which is everyone. I want you to think back or maybe do some quick thinking to those times when you started to feel the temperature in your body flare up because he or she had the nerve to point out one of your flaws. I know, crazy, right? They actually had the nerve to do that. And you started to feel the temperature rise. And, and as they pointed out your flaw, you, you're kind of digging around in your, your stack of cards. Like, what flaw can I bring out against them? And you're just going to be a match. Can you just pause in that moment and think to yourself, why did you not want to create any room? Why did you get so self-defensive? What was at stake? And as you think about that, I want you to evaluate what God, your Father in heaven, wants to happen. You see, there's never going to be a perfect person in your life who can speak into your life about all the flaws, and then you have no ammunition to return fire because they're perfect. That person doesn't exist. But you know what? Your spouse is the next best thing. As imperfect as they may be, they know your flaws more than anyone else. They are familiar with the things that other people might not even be aware of. And if there is one person in your life that God wanted to speak to you through, who better than the person who knows you best? So here's your homework. As you think about these things, uh, number one, make room for your spouse. Humility. Prepare yourself. Say, you know what? There might be some hidden flaws that I'm not even aware of, and today might be the day that he or she actually has the courage to say something or to point them out or to do something. And when they do, I choose humility. I will create space. 
But more than just a passive approach, what I want you to do is this. Once you think about why you've been defensive or why you don't want that topic to be talked about, once you create that space, would you then invite them in? And maybe it looks like this. You sit down and you say, you know what, honey? Is there an area of my life that you can see that I can work on so that I can be a better husband or so I can be a better person? If I were to start one where, one place, where would you recommend I start? And you bring down those walls. You invite them in because who better, who better to bring in to that vulnerable place of your life than the person who knows you best? And guys, guys, here's, here's the thing. When you allow yourself to be vulnerable in that kind of a way, I'm just going to tell you, intimacy goes up. Not that you need a carrot, but just, just telling you, just telling you. Now, I know this is a big ask. And, and by the way, if, if you're not married, I hope you bring this into your marriage. Or if you're not going to be married, use this in your relationships. Choose to create that space and then invite someone in. Invite someone in so that you can grow closer to God together. Next week, we're going to pick things up and look at more of the conflict end of resolving the things when you're not level-headed. So I hope you can jump, I'll come back for part four next week. Let's close today with prayer. Dear Father in heaven, I thank you so much for this time together today where we get to be honest and open about some of the things that we don't talk about that often. When it comes to relationships, there are so many misconceptions and lies that I know I believe, and I know many of us in the room do too, And things like this are just helpful to put words and put thoughts behind. So I pray that throughout the the exercise of today's talk, that we find courage to be open and vulnerable and honest with the people that you've put around us. And as we do so, let us be full of grace and truth as we speak your love to one another. I pray all those things in Jesus' name.